Our title this morning is The Overwhelmed Believer. That word overwhelmed comes from the King James or New American Standard translation of 142 verse 2. My spirit was overwhelmed and then repeated in chapter 143 verse 4. ESB renders that phrase, my spirit faints within me. My spirit faints within me or was overwhelmed. Sometimes we go through trials and hardships, illnesses, loss. And sometimes these external events have little impact on our attitude, our thoughts, our feelings. Sometimes we remain steadfast and confident that God is in control. Well, that response is reflected in our opening song this morning in Rejoice. We sang, Rejoice, when you cry to him, he hears your voice. He will wipe away your tears. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. He will help you sing. And sometimes we experience that ourselves. We see other believers who are going through serious, serious pain. And in the midst of it, they are genuinely rejoicing, outwardly rejoicing in the Lord. And thus, biblically, we can think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as we probably should call them instead, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Commanded by the most powerful man in the world to bow down before a statue threatened with death, if they do not, they display no fear. There's no struggle. There's no lack of confidence in God. But instead, they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Strong confidence No sense of inner turmoil. But equally strong believers can experience the opposite. External trials and dangers do have a strong impact on the inner state of God's people many, many times. So, the Apostle Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians 1, relates, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And even Jesus, of course, in the garden, the night he was betrayed, began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And Jacob will open up that passage next month. Have you been there? Have you been in that state? At the end of your resources, hurting, sorrowful, greatly distressed and troubled, I know that many of you have. I have. 
When we're faced with troubling external circumstances, it's easy for us to slip into despair, feeling like all hope is lost. Indeed, feeling like God doesn't care that he has abandoned us. And thus, like David, our spirit faints within us. We are overwhelmed. And then... If we consider our sins and failures, the problem gets even worse, right? We begin to think, I have no right to God's help. I deserve to be rejected by him. I know what is right. I have rebelled against his commands. He has every reason to turn his back on me. Well, today's Psalms speak to that response. Today's response. Psalms are for you because you've been in that circumstance in the past, perhaps because you're in that circumstance now. David wrote Psalms 142 and 143 for the overwhelmed people of God. Many interpreters think these two Psalms were written by David decades apart. Psalm 142, when he was a young man, fleeing from Saul, and 143, late in his life, sometime after the sin with Bathsheba, perhaps at the time of Absalom's rebellion, perhaps even after that. As an older man, David perhaps remembers, as he faces these horrible circumstances, remembers his earlier psalm, written when he was experiencing similar external dangers and inner turmoil. And so he writes another psalm, echoing some phrases. It seems clear to me that David had Psalm 142 in mind when he wrote 143, echoing phrases from that earlier psalm while bringing in truths that he has learned or has learned much more deeply in the intervening decades. And this leads to a a marvelous pairing, as I've said a number of times as we've made our way through the book of Psalms. For me, one of the revelations, as I have preached this way, just one psalm after another, is to see the links between adjacent psalms. In the reading plan that Jacob was referring to and what I use every year, the psalms are scattered. We don't read them one after another. But in this series, of course, I've gone straight through and seen these links. And here's one of the strongest links between adjacent psalms. While all the psalms point to Jesus, and 142 does, 143 highlights in a specially clear way the work of Jesus. Indeed, Martin Luther jokingly labeled 143, along with 130 and a few others, as the Psalms of Paul, because it reflects New Covenant teaching that is so often associated with the great apostle. So let's consider these two Psalms, and may our Lord use these poems written 3,000 years ago to help the overwhelmed, and to bring glory to his name. 
The Psalms have similar but not identical progression from beginning to end. We're going to follow Psalm 143 pretty much in order and just bring in the ideas, the parallel ideas from 142. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Of course, Psalm 143 is printed in your bulletin in the call to worship if you want to look there. So five parts of our outline, the cry of the overwhelmed, the circumstances, what about God, then the cry of the believer, and finally, God's intended result. The cry of the overwhelmed, the circumstances, what about God, the cry of the believer, and God's intended result. Result, and that will lead us into the Lord's Supper. So, first, the cry of the overwhelmed, 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. Note what's repeated. This is always the case in the Psalms, right? Repetition is one form of underlining or boldface. They didn't have those options in ancient Hebrew. And so he's underlining, with my voice. David is speaking out loud. And this is an encouragement for us. When we're especially troubled, pray out loud. Use your voice. Hear your words. Sometimes when we are particularly upset, when we're particularly overwhelmed, our mind is going every which way, and it's difficult to articulate even what our pain is. And when we speak it aloud and hear what we're saying, that in and of itself is part of the process of depending on God and organizing our thoughts and enabling us to identify what is the issue that's bothering us. And so tell him out loud and plead for mercy from the Lord. The word complaint in verse 2, we must not think of this in a negative sense. You know, the NIV from... uh, Philippians chapter 2, do everything without complaining or arguing. It's not this type of complaining, that grumbling. This is, well, the New New English translation renders this lament. I pour out my lament. I think that's a good way to render it. Or using two words, troubled musings. I think that's the idea. I'm all I'm so troubled on the inside and now I'm I'm pouring all what's inside of me all these issues all my sorrows all my pain I'm pouring that out before God and the parallel in the second half of the verse I tell my trouble before him that's what you're doing speaking out loud of all the storm which is going on inside you And 143 begins similarly. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. God, you must hear now. I'm in such pain. You have to listen to me. 
But the second half of the verse is distinct from anything we read in 142. In your faithfulness, answer me, in your righteousness. You see how this puts a different tone to the plea for mercy? David here highlights that God has promised that he will respond to his servant in such such circumstances. He has promised that he will be faithful, and to be righteous, he has to keep those promises. So given whom God has revealed himself to be, and as we shall see, given who David is, God should hear him. He is obligated, not because there's some external obligation, but because he has obligated himself to hear his people in such circumstances. And so this prayer is a model for us to take God's promises and pour them out to God. This is who you said you are. This is what you promised. I am among your people by your grace, by no merit of mine. And so show yourself as you have explained yourself in this situation. Well, then verse 2 takes it even further. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. This verse in particular is the one that led Luther to call this a psalm of Paul. Now, enter not into judgment sounds in English translation like he's saying, don't condemn me. But the request is more like, don't even put me on trial, God. If you put me on trial, I'm going to be found guilty. There's no hope. Everyone was going to be found guilty if you put us on trial, my God. And so don't even do that. And so this takes the cry that much deeper. Like Paul in Romans 7, in the passage we read, David knows that he does what he acknowledges is wrong. That God would justly reject him. God would justly condemn him. God would justly punish him if he simply looked at his sins. So his plea is not in his own righteousness, but his plea is that he belongs to God. He is God's servant. He is God's slave. He is in that relationship with God because God brought him into that relationship. And God will keep him there, providing for him, just as he keeps us in relationship with him, providing for us all through great David's greater son, Jesus. So that's the initial cry of the overwhelmed. Now, David gets to the circumstances and Here, we can split the circumstances into the external circumstances, what's going on all around David, and the internal circumstances, what he is facing, the turmoil which is inside him. So 142, picking up in the middle of verse 3, 
In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. There's no refuge that remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Those are the external circumstances David faces in 142. Persecutors have trapped him to the right where his right-hand man should be, a protector, one guarding him. There's no one there. There's no refuge, no safe place, and there's no one to care for him, to help him. 143, verse 3, sounds even worse. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. So in 142, there are traps all around with no help. But in 143, the traps have been sprung, right? David is caught. He's crushed. He's driven down to darkness like the dead. There's no light, and thus, without light, it seems there is no hope. Well, those external circumstances lead to him being overwhelmed internally. And here are the phrases we noted in the introduction. 142, verse 3, My spirit faints within me, repeated in 143, verse 4, Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My spirit was overwhelmed. And then the second half of 143, verse 4, my heart within me is appalled, or in another translation, my heart is overcome with dismay. Overcome with dismay. Well, here's the contrast with those three young men in Daniel chapter 3 before Nebuchadnezzar. He's overwhelmed, overcome with dismay. And he sounds like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So know, friends, by God's grace, we sometimes respond to trials and pressures and dangers with that strong confidence in God, obviously rejoicing despite the circumstances. But at other times, again, by God's wise providence, sometimes we struggle mightily in circumstances that may not be any worse. We're distressed, troubled. We despair of life itself. So maybe you've been there recently. Maybe you're there now. Know this. David was there. And in these Psalms, he shows you how the overwhelmed believer can fight the fight of faith to the glory of God. So third heading, what about God? How do we fight that fight of faith? The first step is to remember who God is. Now, that may sound strange because David has been crying out to God already, right? It's not like he's forgotten God. But note 
what he then remembers about God. 142, verse 3. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way, my path, my road. You know the path that I am on, that is. You know what is behind me, what I've already gone through. You know what is ahead of me on this path, what I'm going to encounter in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. You know whether there are more troubles ahead, or you know whether there's going to be a quick deliverance out of these troubles. And furthermore, you know the end of this road that I am on. You know where it is all headed. So the first thing we have to remember is that God knows our way. He knows that for each one of us individually, and he knows the path of his church, of his people. He knows that his church is attacking the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that attack. He knows that he is bringing us on this road that will end with the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He knows that he's leading us on a path that will end with Jesus' return and overcoming all his enemies and gathering all of his people to himself, and we will see him face to face. God knows our individual paths. He knows our corporate path. And he is superintending all of that. Second thing that we are to know and remember from Psalm 142, second half of verse 5, I say, you are my refuge. He just said, I have no refuge. And then he says, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. So as a refuge, he is his security. He is his shield. He is his resting place. And as a portion, God is his inheritance. God is what is promised to him, what is coming to him. And then he uses this phrase, in the land of the living. Well, that is this, this life, right? So what he's saying, by adding that phrase in the land of the living, he's saying, you are my only refuge. In the entire land of the living, you're the only refuge that I have. You're the only refuge I need. You are my portion. You're the inheritance that I want. You're the portion that I need. So like the psalmist in Psalm 73 saying, earth has nothing I desire apart from you. Now note, David doesn't just come up with these ideas of God as his refuge and his portion. He doesn't just come up with these ideas out of thin air. It's not as if he 
He needs a refuge, and so he makes up a God who will be his refuge. Rather, God has revealed himself as a refuge for his people, as a portion for his people over the centuries. He has called himself a shield, a rock, a redeemer, a father to the people of Israel for hundreds of years prior to King David. And so, in Psalm 42, David tells us that God knows our way, and he is our refuge and our portion. What God knows, what God is. And then in Psalm 143, David fortifies these ideas. Listen to verse 5 and note the three verbs that Paul... David uses in verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I remember. I meditate. I ponder, or in another translation, I reflect on the work of your hands. So remember, David remembers the past, what God has done, the works of his hands. And so as he thinks of the past, we surely should include David's past, how he was a young man taking care of his father's sheep and God brought him out of that and raised him, exalted him up so he became king over all of Israel, though he was the youngest of his brothers. How God had enabled him to conquer his enemies, had protected him, and revealed himself to him. So there's the personal remembrance. What has God done in his life? But then there's the remembrance of God's interactions with his people over the centuries. Calling Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, sending Abraham's descendants into Egypt, bringing them out with an outstretched arm by mighty power, enabling them to conquer the nations of Canaan, giving them the law, the old covenant, and working with them despite their rebellion over centuries. Remembering what God has done personally and for his people over the centuries. So then he meditates, that is, he thinks through these acts, personal and corporate. He goes over in his head multiple times what God has done, drawing out from those past examples of God's faithfulness, lessons for himself, and then He ponders, he reflects on all of that. What does this tell me about God? How does this inform my present circumstances? How we all need to do that, to remember, to meditate, to reflect. Remembering God's past faithfulness in each of our lives individually, even when we've been overwhelmed, remembering his faithfulness to his people over the centuries, remembering 
his work through Jesus, through the early church, through the Middle Ages, the Great Awakenings, across the globe, today as he brings every tribe and tongue and nation and people to himself. If he has done all that, if he has continued this work for the last 3,000 years, what are the implications for me when I feel overwhelmed? So this remembering and meditating and pondering leads to 143, verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. When the land is parched, the earth dries up, gets all these cracks in it, right? And the initial rainfall seems to do nothing because the water just goes down into the cracks and doesn't seem to make any difference. But then when the water gushes, it fills in all the cracks and gullies, waters the earth, and it overflows and shows that the parched land has been satisfied, has been well watered. And that's the image that David gives us here. So saying that, de- that God has been faithful over these centuries, remembering, meditating, pondering, leads not only to the statement that God is his portion, which David made in Psalm 142. In 143, it goes deeper. David says, I thirst for God. I want him now. Not just eventually. I want God now. So you see, David is explicit in 143 that his desire is not only for deliverance from his adversaries. His ultimate greater desire is a desire for God right now, thirsting for him, desiring him. Indeed, this is one of God's purposes in bringing us through such challenges to help us see that he is what we need much more than anything else. If we have him, we have enough. And so we thirst for him like a parched land. So now we come to the cry of the believer. And this really encompasses Psalm 143 almost to the end. Verses 7 to 11. We started with the cry of the overwhelmed. And by verse 7 of 143, the external circumstances that David faces have not changed at all. And David still cries out, but there's a different note in his cry. His cry is now the cry of the believer. For he takes what he has remembered about God and bases his cries now on those truths that God has revealed about himself. In 142, we see the change when we link the cries of verse 6 
to the expressions of faith in verse 5. In verse 5, he calls God his refuge and his portion, and then David's cries in verse 6 directly depend on that statement of faith. He prays, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. That is, you are my portion. Without you, I have nothing. So here, attend to me. That's a request for the internal relief. And then in the second half of that verse, he says, deliver me from persecutors, for they are too strong for me. That is, you are my refuge, what he called God in the previous verse. So provide for my external problems. But the cry of the believer is more obvious, less subtle, in Psalm 143. The great majority of the requests in verses 7 to 11 of 143 concern his inner turmoil rather than his outer circumstances. For now, David knows that he needs God much more than he needs relief from his external circumstances. But those circumstances are still important. So look ahead to verse 9 of 143, where he echoes what he had said decades earlier in verses 5 and 6 of 142. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord, I have fled to you for refuge. So make sure you grasp this. I'm not at all saying don't pray for relief from the external circumstances. That's a godly, right prayer. But what we need more than relief from the external circumstances is God as our portion now. Knowing God, delighting in him now. All of us will face external circumstances for which there is no relief eventually if Jesus has not come and returned before our physical death. Those circumstances are not going to be alleviated. We will die physically. But God is our portion in the midst of of that final day, as he is every day. So by all means, pray for relief of the external circumstances, but the bulk of the prayer here in Psalm 143 and the guideline for us is pray for God to be with you now and to have that sense of his presence now. So verse 7 Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. So David is saying, I need you more than I need relief from my circumstances. Shine your face on me. And since the pit is like the darkest night, he then cries out in verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. I love this verse. Having remembered, he trusts in God. 
He trusts in God's committed, promised love to his people, his chesed, his steadfast love, as that has been evidenced throughout the history of the people of Israel. And so David says, I'm lost in deepest darkness. Bring the morning. Bring the morning. I know it's coming, so shine the light of the morning on me. Bring to my ears more reminders of that love. I need to keep hearing in order to strengthen my faith. So let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. Then second half of the verse. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Now in 142, verse 3, he had said, You know my way. Now he says, make me know my way. You know my way. Make me to know my way. I cannot even take another step along the path, says David, without you leading me. And then verse 10 expands on this idea. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So he's saying, since God is his God, he wants God to lead him, to guide him, to teach him, in order that he might show others what God is like. But note that he not only says, teach me your will, he says, teach me to do your will. Similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 28, right? Not just teach them all my commandments, but teach them to observe all my commandments. We need to know his will, his commandments, but we also need to know how to do his will, how to live out his commandments in this crazy fallen world. And so his good spirit must lead us. And this is what we've talked about so often over the years, our active dependence on him to lead us and guide us, turning to him, asking for his help, his leadership. Augustine of Hippo commenting on this verse some 1,600 years ago, said this. If you do not teach me, I shall do my own will, for my own bad spirit has led me in a crooked way into the wrong place. So teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me. Verse 11 then sums up the cry of the believer. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. We can think of preserve my life as the external circumstances, and then bring my soul out of trouble as the internal. The cry of the believer 
based on God's revelation of who he is and his faithfulness individually and corporately over the centuries, relying on that to cry out to God. Well, finally, God's intended result. Verse 11 of 143 highlights God's intended result also. For your namesake, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Back in verse 1, David had based his plea for an answer, recall, on God's righteousness and faithfulness. And he returns to that basis for his request as he concludes the psalm. Because this is God's motivation for all that he does, the glory of his name, showing what he is like, the praise of his glorious grace. We read in the service from Daniel 9, Daniel's prayer asking for God to restore Jerusalem, though his people do not deserve it. And he, too, explicitly asks not for the sake of the people, but for the sake of God's holy name. And that is our prayer. That is our solid hope. Because in his great plan of redemption, God's glory, God's reputation is all bound up with what happens to his people, those he has redeemed through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so, though, as David himself says in Psalm 143, all of us have sinned, we are all rebels deserving his wrath, he delights to overcome our external and internal difficulties. He delights to show his power, his grace, his might, and his mercy to his people. And thus, the outcome of these cries is shown in verse 12. Verse 12 of 143, and the last verse, verse 7 of 142. Verse 12, In your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. That's the external. God eventually is is going to overcome all evil, all opposition. So every knee will bow, Every tongue proclaimed that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then, second half of verse 12, you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. Why? For I am your servant. I am amongst your people. Your glory is all wrapped up in what happens with your people. So you will do this. You will Show your steadfast love to me. And the last verse in 142. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The external praise that glorifies him. The righteous will surround me. For you will deal bountifully with me. David here pictures the entire congregation now coming together, all God's people praising God. So in conclusion, what about you? What about you? Again, 
in the trials of your life? Are you like David in the beginning of these psalms, sorrowful, overwhelmed? We can glorify God when we have strong confidence in the midst of trials like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we can also glorify God when we are overwhelmed and hurting close to despair. The question is, what do we do when we find ourselves overwhelmed? As we will sing shortly, when the trial comes and our hope seems lost, I will find my strength in the mighty cross. Only there, only Jesus. We will find that strength when we come to the Lord's table in the way that he intends. When in our struggles, we remember through the Lord's Supper who God is, what he has promised. When as we hold the elements and we meditate on what they represent, the body of our Lord Jesus, the blood of the Lord Jesus, his death, his suffering. And when we eat and drink and reflect on his promises, his faithfulness, his righteousness, and sense that physical nourishment representing the spiritual nourishment he gives us by participating in the ordinance that he ordained. We glorify him. We remember, we meditate, we ponder. And this enables us to say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. So when we use the Lord's Supper and other vehicles he gives us, the word, other believers, the preaching of the word, then when we deepen our hunger for him and our thirst for him, we are glorifying his name. We are highlighting his character. And all this begins through the initial coming to faith in Jesus. Confessing our sin, our rebellion, and asking him to forgive us on the basis of Jesus' death. And then all of us, though, need that continual repentance coming before him because this is not a one-time event. It's not like we are overwhelmed once, now we turn to him, and voo, the rest of our life, it's straight level ground. It's daily, regularly, going back to him and saying, I have sinned, I am yours in Jesus. Forgive me, accept me, hold me fast, lead me to the end. So we pray that God would use 
this ordinance to accomplish its purpose of reminding us of who Jesus is, enabling us to meditate on his work, and then reflect on and bring into our, our, the front of our consciousness our status before him as his beloved children. Let's pray together.